0: Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Taking our Bibles this evening and opening them, please, to the book of Jude, next to the last book in the New Testament. Our ushers are coming by. If you didn't get an outline sheet on your way in, they'll happily give you one so you can follow along as we open our Bibles this evening to the book of Jude and learn what it means to earnestly contend for the faith. We made an announcement earlier for the ladies' meeting tomorrow night, and that's for all middle school and up girls and their moms uh, to join together for a wonderful time of fellowship tomorrow evening. Uh, So keep that in mind, uh, moms, as you bring your daughters tomorrow evening. Jude has been called the backdoor epistle of the New Testament. It's one of the eight general epistles found among the 27 books of the New Testament. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, only philemon second john and third john are shorter than the book of jude the message of the book of jude is found in 25 verses and there are 25 verses that no christian can afford to ignore now jude never quotes from the old testament but he alludes to the old testament some 9 times in these 25 verses a very strong message exhorting christians that they would earnestly contend for the faith because, he'll say this in verse 4, certain men have crept in unawares. We're going to begin our reading of the book of Jude in verse 1 and read the whole book through this evening as we open this study in the book of Jude this evening. The Word of God says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness unto the judgment of the great day." Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee, but these speak evil of those things which they know not but what they know naturally is brute beast and those things they corrupt themselves woe unto them they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error Balaam for reward and per- after the error rather of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah these are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you feeding themselves without fear clouds are they without water Carried about of winds, trees, whose fruit withered, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wondering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh, with ten thousand of his saints, to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which the ungodly committed of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage, but beloved. Remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the Spirit, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by flesh. Now, unto him that is able to keep you from falling... To present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into the book of Jude this evening. Father, we come asking that you would use our consideration of this book, this letter that's a general letter written to all, to especially convict hearts this evening, to comfort some. For, Lord, we live in trembling times where insecurity is all around us, political insecurity and economic insecurity, and it's melted down even, Lord, to spiritual insecurity that causes many to tremble. And so as we look in this book, Lord, Sunday by Sunday, we pray that you would help us to be firm in faith, that we'd earnestly contend for it, that we'd understand with gracious spirits what it means to stand convictionally about the truths that you've delivered to us, understanding our responsibility to pass on the faith carefully, with integrity, until you come or till you call us home. And so, Lord, this evening, I pray that you'd open our hearts to what we've read and that we'd go out from this service this evening prepared to face off against the adversary, the devil, who as a roaring lion, seeks whom he may devour. Lord, keep us from the evil one and deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. It seems like every month we hear about the falling of another Christian celebrity, someone whose testimony has widely been used, has once again, they call it now, deconverted. They've turned from the things that they once held, and sometimes when they turn or deconvert, headlines are written about them. In a 2015 Pew Research poll, there was an indication that for everyone who comes to Christ as Savior, there are now four who are leaving the faith. I want that to sink in. For everyone who's making a profession of Christ in, as Savior in the United States, four are professing to leave the faith. In 2018, the Pine Tops Foundation reported that over the next 30 years, Christian affiliation in America will decline by one million every year. In fact, the foundation summarizes, the Pine Tops Foundation summarizes their findings with these words, they said. While it's hard to find clear data, as far as we can tell, this is the single largest generational loss of souls in history who were nominally raised in the church and no longer call themselves followers of Jesus they're estimating in the next 30 years that between 30 and 42 million Americans will deny the faith. We've opened our Bibles this evening to the book of Jude. I've done that intentionally because Jude is a tract for our times. It's a small book with a strong message. It's a book challenging us in verse 3 to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered. Jude is sounding an alarm. Jude helps us to realize that the greatest danger that we face is not the temptation from without, nor is it the attack, even though that attack from without can often be bitter and blusterous. These are not the greatest challenges that we face. He wants us to realize that the greatest challenge we face in earnestly contending for the faith is the challenge from within. Jude depends on much of what Peter has already written. Peter prophesied a day that would come when people would fall away. In 1 Peter, or 2 Peter rather, chapter 2 and verse 1, Peter prophesied this, that there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies and many will follow their pernicious ways. Well, it must have already happened because now Jude is going to say in verse 4, that certain men have crept in unawares who were before of old ordained unto condemnation, ungodly men. Jude warns every believer of the greatest challenge that we face, that challenge from within. From the time the Trojan horse was dragged into Troy, even to the present, anyone who understands what it means to stand and having done all therefore to stand, understands that standing is often made most difficult by those who have come in unawares, by those who have crept in, by those who are spoiling from within. And so that's the burden that Jude writes about. Conspiracy theories, you understand, are not just about colors that take down nations. The truth is, Satan has conspired to take down churches and take down communities for Christ for generations. And so we turn to the book of Jude in order to be exhorted, in order to be challenged, in order to be alerted to the need to earnestly contend for the faith, knowing that the church is going to face apostasy or the falling away, knowing that believers are going to disappoint, should not be new news to us. You'll recall that of the twelve, one, Judas went out, and John 13 says, and it was night. You recall that John himself would write, they went out from us for they were not of us. Had they been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be manifested that they were not of us. And I would submit to you that if people wouldn't stand true with Jesus Christ and stand true with John, who was known as the beloved apostle, surely in our times we need to beware, we need to understand that there will be those who will sadly go astray. Before Jude exposes the identities of the false teachers who have crept in, and he spends a great deal of time in this short letter, identifying the characteristics of those who have crept in unawares. Before he does that, there's this prologue, there's this introduction. There are words from Jude in which he introduces himself, and I think calms the hearts of those who otherwise would find themselves asking the question, like the disciples asked around the table at the last supper, Lord, is it I? Lord, will I fall away? Lord, will I remain faithful? I want to talk this evening to every person in this room who with tender heart says, I understand, Pastor, that's not how I begin the race, it's how I end. I understand, Pastor, that I too need to be careful For thinking I stand, I may myself fall. I want to be encouraged that I would stand even when temptations to fall are all around me. And so we open our Bibles this evening to the first two verses of the book of Jude, and we discover that only those who are spiritually secure will stand fast against error. This is the burden of Jude. Spiritual security to stand, that's the theme of these first two verses. And we find that these first two verses contain a humble introduction. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. We pause there. Jude is opening his letter like so many of the ancient letters. This was the Hellenistic or the Greek pattern of writing. The author would begin by naming himself, not ending the letter by signing Sincerely Yours, but by starting the letter, identifying himself. Don't you wish? that all correspondence came that way? Some of you are thinking, I can't remember the last time I wrote or received a letter. But you do still correspond, and I've made this error and received this error many times. You ever receive a text from somebody and you go, that's really interesting, I don't know who sent that? And then you find yourself a little embarrassed. Should I send them a note and say, who sent this? Uh, I find myself a little embarrassed. I think, well, I don't have their name on speed dial. It's not coming up by anything but a number. I did it myself recently. I sent somebody a note by text, letting them know I was thinking and praying for them, and they sent back a note to me saying, who is this? (laughs) A Jew doesn't leave you wondering. He starts this book like a Grecian author. He introduces himself, and then he follows a bit more of a a Hebrew pattern. Hebrew correspondence would begin with a blessing, and you'll see that in verse 2. When he says, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. He's moved from the Grecian pattern of identifying yourself at the beginning of the letter to the Hebrew pattern of sharing a blessing. He does this at the beginning, and I find it to be a very humble introduction. The first words of this brief epistle help us to learn that Jude is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans. He begins the epistles to the Romans in Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, sounds just like Jude. But then he continues, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of Christ. You're not going to see Jude making any attempt to identify himself as an apostle. Jude is not one of the apostles. He knows that. In fact, he identifies the apostles there in verse 17 when he says, but beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus. He's not including himself in the apostolic number. He's identifying himself very humbly as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, how a person introduces themselves can be very important. You learn about a person by how they introduce themselves. You remember Muhammad Ali, how he introduced himself? I am the greatest, he said. What an introduction. I liked the way our governor and former vice president would introduce himself. Mike Pence was often heard to say, I am a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. That was a good introduction. He was identifying who he was and where he stood with very few words. Even so, Jude is identifying himself very clearly with few words. He's a servant, a servant of Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 21, the Old Testament tells us of a very unusual custom. It's the custom of the bond servant. Remember that custom? How that a servant who was in a home, if he had the opportunity to enjoy personal freedom... Could put aside that freedom and voluntarily make himself a bond servant in the home. And the sign of the bond servant was the sign of a pierced ear, or as they say in New England, a piastia. The bond servant would go to the doorpost, and with with a nail, it would seem, their ear would be quickly pierced, and they would identify themselves as wanting to serve in this family forever. That's the imagery that Jude uses in this passage. He knows whereof he speaks when he helps us to understand that he willfully, willingly, personally made a decision to be a servant of Jesus Christ. He takes this title, this lowly, humble, loving title, he takes it very seriously and introduces himself in this way, and let me suggest to you, for the Christian, there's no greater title than to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us we're not to compare ourselves among ourselves, but we find ourselves often stepping into that trap. My, I wish I could sing like so-and-so. I wish I had the capacity to teach like that person. The honorable title of the New Testament is this title that Jude assumes in verse 1, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And friends, some of those who are going to receive the loudest well done in heaven will be those who have served in the humblest places Without desire for man's applause, without much recognition here on this planet, their recognition will be eternal. Jude lovingly, willingly, personally says, just call me a servant of Jesus Christ. That ought to be all of our desire. We ought to all aspire to be a servant of Jesus Christ. No greater title can be given. But Jude goes on, he says, He's not only a servant of Jesus Christ, he's the brother, the brother of James. Brother of James, but watch it here. He doesn't say the brother because I believe, and you'll soon see, that he's not the only brother of James. The New Testament identifies five different men who had the title or the name James. It was a very common name in New Testament times. In Matthew 10 and verse 2, there's James, the son of Zebedee. In Matthew 10 and verse 3, there's James, the son of Alphaeus. These two served as apostles to the Lord. In Mark 15 and verse 40, there's James, the younger. In Luke 6 and verse 16, there's James, the father of Judas, the one who would betray him. In Matthew 13 and verse 55, there's James, the half-brother of the Lord. And we'll have more to say about him in a moment because I believe that's who this James is. He's the half-brother of the Lord. Now, there are five men who are named Jude in the New Testament. Or Judas, or Judah, all different forms of the same name. The name meant praise. You'll find Judas of Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and Judas Barsabbas in Acts chapter 15. You'll find Judas Iscariot in Matthew 10, the one who would betray him. You'll find the apostle Jude. In John 14 and verse 22, and now we have another Jude. This Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, is the brother of James. Why does he identify himself that way? Because everybody knew who this James was. The James being spoken of here, after all, was the pastor of the mother church, the church in Jerusalem. He's identified as such in Acts chapter 15 when at the Jerusalem council, he stands up and he gives his opinion and everyone follows after him. The early church fathers clearly identified James, the half-brother of Jesus, as being the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And Clement of Alexandria, who lived way back in 150 AD, noted that while Jude did not refer to himself as Jesus' brother, others did, people understood that the one who's writing this note is one who grew up in the family of Jesus. Jesus. So it becomes even more meaningful when you understand that he willingly, lovingly, personally made a decision to call himself a servant of Jesus Christ. There's much for us to learn from this little title of introduction. The Roman Catholic tradition is called Semper Virgo. Semper Virgo. The Catholic Church teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary, believing that she must have perpetually been a virgin to be worthy of being the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Going beyond that, the Roman Catholic Church actually teaches the Immaculate Conception of Mary. What does that mean? The Roman Catholic doctrine of Immaculate Conception is not the Immaculate Conception of Jesus. The Roman Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is that Mary was born without sin so that she would have a womb that would be conducive to the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, being born of her. And so we ask, is that what the New Testament teaches? Because after all, we're reading a letter from one called Jude, of whom the early church fathers said this is undoubtedly one of the brothers of Jesus. How did they get that opinion? Take your Bibles with me and come back to the gospel of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And we read, beginning in verse 55, Matthew 13 and verse 55. We'll start in verse 54. When he was coming to his own country, he taught them in the synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty words? He's about to find out, as we know, a prophet's not without honor, save in his own country. Verse 55, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, and now comes a listing of the family members of Jesus. His brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Judas, who is Jude, is likely to have been the youngest of the brothers of Jesus. And so we count Jesus and James and Joseph, or Joseph and Simon and Jude, five young men living in that home. And verse 56, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Sisters is plural. How many children did Mary and Joseph have? Well, let's begin by saying none until after Jesus was born. For the Bible tells us Joseph knew her not, speaking of Mary, until after Christ was born. But after Christ was born, this home had at least seven children. There may have been more than two sisters after all. And when you turn to John chapter 7, you learn something about the dynamic of his home. John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, we read in verse 5 about his brethren. His brethren were giving him counsel here in the early parts of John chapter 7, telling him to go up to the feast in Jerusalem. And John makes this comment in verse 5, neither did his brethren believe in Him. He grew up in a home surrounded by unbelieving siblings. Our Savior grew up in a home where no doubt His unbelieving siblings would have at times asked intriguing questions or even mocked. But when you come over to the book of Acts chapter 1, something wonderful is revealed. Acts chapter 1. Let's trace this message to Acts chapter 1 for just a moment. In Acts chapter 1, We read in verse 14 about those who were continuing, waiting for the day of Pentecost and the Spirit of God to come. They continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, ah, and with his brethren. Likely, one of those brethren, those four brothers who were named, in the upper room praying in preparation for Pentecost, was the one who's writing this letter whose name was Jude. Something wonderful happened. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about it. The brothers of Jesus and the sisters in his family were not yet believers. After his resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that Jesus, when he came back from the dead, appeared to various ones, to Peter, and listed among those to whom he appeared is James, James his half-brother, likely the oldest sibling in his home. And from the testimony of James, perhaps Jude was impacted. Certainly after the resurrection, Jude was impacted. He's found, after all, in the prayer meeting. There's encouragement here, folks. Perhaps you have family members that are lost for whom you're praying. Perhaps it seems they've grown up knowing the truths of God's Word just as surely as you have continue to bring them before the throne of grace. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In his lifetime, the Savior that we serve, who's familiar with all the feelings of our infirmities, the great high priest to whom we pray, knew the awful burden of praying for family members who were lost and had the wonderful responsibility and privilege of seeing his family members one by one come to call themselves willingly, personally, and lovingly servants of Jesus Christ. What a blessing. As I turn back to Jude, I discover something even more wonderful about Jude. Jude was the kind of brother who was willing to play second fiddle. He doesn't say, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. He simply says, I'm the brother of James. And he knows that most people know James. James is the pastor of the mother church there in Jerusalem. He's so humble that he's unwilling to share any biological link, any familial link, with Jesus who is now his Savior. He's like John the Baptist, if you will. Jude, who takes this position of humility, reflects the same character of John the Baptist who said, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist who would say, I'm not worthy to undo his sandals, Jude exhibits that same character. And it's marvelous to consider, folks. Can you imagine growing up in the same home with Jesus? Why are you so naughty, Jude? James, why don't you pipe down? You know, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. If you've grown up with a perfect sibling, you understand the burden that Jude faced from the time of his infancy. Yet something wonderful happened. Mary, the mother of Jude witnessed what had been prophesied. She witnessed the sword unleashed upon her son as she stood at the foot of the, cro- of the cross. John the apostle heard Jesus when he said, Behold your mother, and woman, behold your son, entrusting the care of his mother not to his brother James or to his brother Jude, but to his servant, John, the loving apostle. But days afterward, these family members of the Lord Jesus Christ came to the position where they accepted him as their savior and the only sacrifice for their sins. Dear one, this evening we need to all be reminded there's nothing more wonderful than being able to introduce ourselves as servants of Jesus Christ. Nothing more wonderful. It's not more wonderful even to say, I grew up in the same house with him. We share the same mother. No, Jude simply introduced himself as a love servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, who made a decision, a personal, loving decision. He willingly decided that his older half-sibling was God, who alone needs to be worshipped. Can you say with the songwriter, I am happy in the service of the King, I am happy, oh so happy. I have peace and joy that nothing else can bring in the service of my King. Jude could. He gives evidence of that in this humble introduction. Those who administer wisely need to minister humbly. This is our security. The believer's security begins in humble service. Now Jude, he writes with sincere humility, but he also shares some wonderful words at the very outset of this epistle. These words form a holy identification. Having introduced himself Now he introduces those to whom he is writing. And Jude likes to write with triplets, if you will, or triads. He likes to string together three words that connect to one another logically. And he begins doing that almost immediately. Nine times he will use triplets in this 25 verse epistle. The first verse contains the first one Jude, who's the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James is writing to them that are sanctified by the Father, preserved by Jesus Christ, and called. Do You see the three words that connect together logically? These three words provide great security for the saints. And my, how we need security. After all, He's going to call upon us, the Spirit of God is going to call upon us to earnestly contend for the faith. I'm going to share these words that He shares, and I'm going to do it in the logical order of the text. So let's discover in this text that the Holy Spirit calls the believer. While it's the last word of verse 1, it's the most important word in the original language. This is a verbal adjective, a verbal adjective. Kalein is the word in the Greek language. And our spiritual journey begins with a call. And so he says we are called. And while the Holy Spirit is not named in this verse because I too like triads and triplets, and having seen the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in this text, I think you have evidence of a Trinitarian formula that is happening here at the end of verse 1. Who is it that calls us? Well, the one who has been given that responsibility is the Spirit of God, who convinces the world of, of its sin and righteousness and judgment to come. Every Christian life begins with a calling. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says, God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thank God for his calling. Second Timothy 1 and verse 9 says, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Now, there's an external calling. We can look up into the heavens and see the glory of the firmaments around about us and the beauty of the stars and understand that our God is a great God and a great creator That can be impressed upon our heart so that we have conviction of the fact that one day we'll stand before God. There's an external calling, and every Christian's to participate in that. When we share testimony with others, when we share God's Word with others, it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, but there's an internal calling. And if you experience that internal calling, you know what I'm talking about. The internal calling, the prompting of the Spirit of God, it causes us to wrestle with thoughts of our sin. It causes us to wrestle with the fact that one day we'll stand accountable before God. That internal calling, where there's no peace, saith my God, unto the wicked. Jude is speaking to those who have known the calling of God. Can you remember when God called you? Perhaps you were young, perhaps not so young. Remember when God began to stir in you that lack of peace and that constant, it seemed, Clamor of your mind that caused you to say, somehow I need to find peace with God, somehow I need to be rid of this burden of sin, somehow I need to know where I'm going to be spending eternity. I can't live this life the way it's going. God did that internal work of calling, and those that He calls, Romans 8 says in verse 39, He justifies, He brings to the wonderful blessing of salvation. From time to time, I've had people have come to me and they've said, Pastor, do you think it's possible that I have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and I'll forever be damned? My answer is always an immediate no, I don't think that's possible. And I don't think it's possible because fact is you're asking the question. Now, if you weren't asking the question, I'd begin to wonder about your situation But if there is within you a burden of heart that causes you to ask the question about whether or not you're right with God, that's an evidence of God's internal calling. And no, I don't believe you've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. Similarly, there's an assurance of salvation that comes when we trust Jesus Christ as Savior and the Spirit comes to abide within us and we have an unction and we have no need that anyone would teach us. Suddenly, mysteriously, but undeniably, the Spirit of God living within the believer gives to us that wonderful blessing of knowing that we're abiding with Him. The poet said, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one. Stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live for Him. The Holy Spirit calls the believer. And the Father loves the believer. Now, the King James translators speak of sanctification in the middle of verse 1, to them that are sanctified by God the Father. I think the verse is likely better read this way, to those who are called, who are loved of God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. There's a controversial Greek word in the middle of verse 1, and I'm going to come at this text with an understanding that he's speaking of the love of of the Father. The love of the Father is expressed to us throughout the pages of God's Word, but here it's expressed to us in a wonderful way. It's expressed as a love from the past that is continuing in the present and will always continue even into the future. So the verse can be read this way, those who have been and continue to be and will forever be loved of the Father. Love with everlasting love led by grace his love to know, that God, who so loved the world, loved you. If you've come to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, that Father's love is a perpetual, ongoing, eternal love. And Jude is calling that love to our understanding in this passage. And more than that, he's going to be speaking about the Savior, who in this passage, in the King James, is said to preserve us. And we'll say that the Savior keeps the believer's. Just as the word love is spoken of as the past and the present and the future, even so, this being kept is spoken of. It's called a perfect passive participle. I know you're here for a Greek grammar lesson this evening, so let me help you with it. What that means is the Savior who keeps us, He did it, He does it. We don't do it ourselves, it's passive, but it's perfect which means it happened in the past, it's continuing now, and it will ever continue. And it's modifying the word to call. That's why we started with that word call. And so our Christian life begins with a calling. And as that Christian life begins with a calling, we come under the wonderful blessing of the love of God that happened in the past, not that we loved Him, that He first loved us. God commended His love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, That love that he gave to us in the past is continuing in the present and will ever continue. And more than that, that keeping that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished in the past is continuing in the present and it will ever continue. It's not up to you to hold on to him. He has given to us the promise that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will take them out of my hand. The Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to take them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, this is really important because Jude is writing to those who need to earnestly contend for the faith. And Jude is writing to those who are witnessing this insurgency of wickedness that's coming into the church, that's causing these first century disciples to disperse and be discouraged. And so he begins by sharing these positional truths to help us to know if you've been called, you're abiding in the love of God and you're being kept right now by the glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. My mother grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston. As a Swedish young lady, she went to a Swedish church where they preached in Swedish, sang in Swedish, everything in the church was Swedish. She had many wonderful Swedish hymns that she loved to sing. Often I've discovered later that those hymns were written by Caroline Sandelberg. She was known as Lena, Lena Berg, a Swedish composer. Lena Berg wrote over 600 hymns for the Swedish church. She was known as the Fanny Crosby of Sweden. She lived in the 1800s. When she was just 26 years old, she witnessed her father falling out of a boat and drowning, she saw it happen. Over her lifetime, she gave us hymns like day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. But I think my mother's favorite song that she sang in Swedish often was the song that translates this way, more secure is no one ever than the loved ones of the Savior, not yon star on high abiding nor the bird in home nest hiding. Neither life nor death can ever from the Lord his loved ones sever, for his love and deep compassion comforts them in tribulation. Little flock, to joy then yield ye. Jacob's God will ever shield thee. Rest secure as this defender, at his will, all foes surrender. There's blessing in this introduction. The blessing of this introduction is the holy identification that's been given to the people of God. Those who are called upon to earnestly contend for the faith are in a wonderful position of security. And this passage in verse 2 provides also a hopeful intercession. Here's Jude's second triplet, if you will. He says, mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Mercy. We know that's not getting what we deserve, right? Grace is getting what we don't deserve, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Jude prays, if you will, for them that they would know the mercy and the peace. Believers can have peace with God, Romans 5.1, and they can also have the peace of God, Philippians 4 and verse 7 says, the peace that passes understanding. We have peace with God when we come to salvation, and we have the peace of God as the Spirit of God gives that to us every day. And then he says and love be multiplied. God's love is not based on emotion. God's love is volitional. It's of His own intent that He loves us. I heard a story of a man who traveled south. He sat down to dinner in a cafe, and he said, I'd like the breakfast menu, and he looked at the breakfast menu, and it had eggs on the menu, and he said, I'm just going to have some eggs and some bacon. that'd That'd be enough. The waitress came over, and she gave him Toast and eggs and bacon. He'd actually ordered the toast as well, but then she put down a bowl in front of him of this white stuff. He said, What's this? She said, That's grits. He said, Well, I ordered toast and bacon and eggs. I didn't order any grits. And of course, the Southern waitress, being a Southern waitress, looked at him and she said, Buddy, you just get some. The truth is, when you come to Christ as Savior, you just get this. You get the mercy of God. You get the love of God. You get the peace of God that passes all understanding. Jude is praying that these graces would be multiplied in the hearts of everyone who reads and considers the truth of this letter. He wants those who would earnestly contend for the faith to be filled with the grace of God. Listen. We're living in an age of deconverting. We're going to talk about that as we enter into the book of Jude. We have to stand on the porch and marvel for just a little bit. But we get to talk about it immersed in the security that is not our own, but the security that God gives to all those who believe, the security of being in Christ as we spoke about this morning. In verse 24, Jude is going to end this letter this way, now unto him that's able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Aren't you glad that he's able? To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Jude ends with words of confidence that the Savior is able to present us faultless before his throne. As we enter into the book of Jude, we enter with the confidence that we can stand secure For we know the one who loves us and gave himself for us. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.